to will not be too bored. What came out, and I tried to prepare it, it's a little bit more theoretical with less jokes, unfortunately for you, than usual. I noticed that there is one shift from previous years. In previous years, we had these mysterious courses without titles, no? I just give a course, almost a Kantian nominal thing in itself. A course as such, no title. This year, even the talks here are without a title. Okay, but if I were to give a title, the title would have been a plea for ethical violence against Levinas. Today, in our era of oversensitivity for harassment, every ethical pressure is experienced as a mask of some hidden violence of power. Such tolerant attitude of denouncing ethical violence, I think, fails to perceive how contemporary power no longer primarily relies on censorship, repression, and so on, but on unconstrained permissivity. Let me quote here Alain Berdu's thesis 14 of his, at least in my version, some people claim there are 13, 15 theses of, of, on contemporary art. Quote, since it is sure of its ability to control the entire domain of the visible and the audible via the laws governing commercial circulation and democratic communication, empire no longer censors anything. All art and all thought is ruined when we accept this permission to consume, to communicate and to enjoy. We should become pitiless censors of ourselves. End of quote. And effectively, today we seem to be at the opposite point of the ideology of the 60s. The mottos of spontaneity, creative self-expression and so on are taken over by those in power. That is to say, the old logic of the system reproducing itself through repressing and rigidly channeling, channeling the subject's spontaneous impetuses is abandoned. Non-alienated spontaneity, self-expression, self-realization, they all serve the system, which is why pitiless self-censorship is a sequanon of emancipatory politics. Especially, I think, in the domain of poetic art. This means that one should totally reject any attitude of self-expression, of displaying innermost emotional turmoils, desires, dreams, and so on. Through art has nothing whatsoever to do with the disgusting emotional exhibitionism. Insofar as the standard notion of poetic spirit is the ability to display one's intimate turmoils, what the Soviet poet Vladimir Mayakovsky, whom I otherwise do not admire excessively, what he said about himself with regard to his turn from personal poetry to political propaganda is, I think, nonetheless a constitutive gesture of a true poet. He said simply, I had to step on the throat of my muse. If there is a thing that provokes disgust in a true poet, it is the scene when a close friend opens your heart to you, spilling out all the dirt of his so-called inner life. Consequently, one should totally reject the standard opposition of objective science focused on reality and subjective art focused on emotional reaction to reality or self-expression. If anything, I claim, true art is in a way more asubjective 
than science. In science, I remain a person with my pathological features. I just refer to objectivity outside my subjective inner universe. While in true art, the artist has to undergo a kind of radical self-objectivization. He has to die in and for himself, turn himself into a kind of living dead. Now, can one imagine a stronger contrast to today's all-pervasive complaints about ethical violence, to the tendency to submit to criticism ethical injunctions which terrorize us allegedly with the brutal imposition of their universality. The ultimate irony is that this critique of ethical violence, it is also incidentally the title of the last book by Judith Butler, but it now published only in German. Uh, this critique of ethical violence is sometimes, I think, in a totally misleading, erroneous way, even linked to Nietzsche's motive of moral norms as imposed by the weak on the strong, thwarting life assertiveness. We all know these topics of moral sensitivity, bad conscience, guilt feeling, as it internalized resistance to the heroic assertion of life. However, for Nietzsche, such moral sensitivity culminates precisely in the contemporary last man who fears excessive intensity of life as something that may disturb his search for happiness without stress, and who for this very reason rejects cruel imposed moral norms as a threat to his fragile balance. Now I claim that what gets lost in such a critique of ethical violence is precisely the most precious aspect of the Jewish legacy. Let us not forget that in the Jewish tradition, the divine mosaic law is experienced as something externally violently imposed, something contingent and traumatic. What is arguably the ultimate scene of religious ideological interpolation? The pronouncement of the Decalogue on the, or rather beneath the Mount Sinai is the very opposite of something that emerges organically as an outcome on the path of self-knowledge or self-realization. It is the pronouncement, the pronouncement sorry, of the Decalogue is ethical violence at its purest. And I think that the Judeo-Christian tradition is thus to be strictly opposed to the New Age Gnostic problematic of self-realization or self-fulfillment. When the Old Testament enjoins you to love and respect your neighbor, this does not refer to your imaginary shambhal, but to the neighbor as traumatic thing. In contrast to the New Age attitude, which ultimately reduces my neighbor to my mirror image, or to the means in the path of my self-realization, like the Jungian psychology in which other persons around me are ultimately reduced to the projections of the different disavowed aspects of my personality, Judaism opens up a tradition in which an alien traumatic kernel forever persists in my neighbor. The neighbor remains an impenetrable enigmatic presence that fundamentally hystericizes me. Now it is against this background that one should approach the topic of iconoclasm. The Jewish commandment, which prohibits images of God, I think, is the obverse of the statement that relating to one's neighbor is the only terrain of religious practice. The obverse not in the sense of the opposite, but in the sense of its other side. 
That is to say, it's the other side of the idea that the divine dimension is present in our lives only in the way we relate to our neighbors. No images of God does not point towards some Gnostic experience of the divine beyond our reality, a divine which is beyond any image. On the contrary, it designates a kind of ethical Hikronus Hixalta. Do you want to be religious? Okay, forget about God, prove it here in the works of love, in the way you relate to your neighbors. Levinas was therefore right to emphasize how, a quote from uh, Levinas, how nothing is more opposed to a relation with the face than contact with the irrational and mystery. End of quote. Judaism is anti-Gnosticism par excellence. And it is from here that one should approach the key Levinasian notion of encountering the other space as the epiphany, as the event that precedes truth itself. Again a quote from his Totality and Infinity. To seek truth, I have already established a relationship with a face which can guarantee itself whose epiphany itself is somehow a work of honor. Every language, as an exchange of verbal signs, refers already to this primordial work of honor. Deceit and veracity already presuppose the absolute authenticity of the face. End of quote. Now, I think, that's my first step towards criticism, that one should read these lines against the background of what Jacques Lacan characterized as the circular self-referential structure of the symbolic order. You know how ultimately in language science points to other science, it's kind of a abyss of self-referentiality. So when Levinas claims that a face, you remember how he put it, can guarantee itself, this means that precisely it serves as the non-linguistic point of reference which enables us to break the vicious circularity of the symbolic order, providing it with the ultimate foundation, the absolute authenticity. The face is thus the ultimate fetish, the object which fills in, obfuscates the big other's inconsistency, the abyss of its, uh, the abyss of its uh, uh, circularity. So what then, what is shame? this experience precisely of losing one's face. There is a gap which forever separates the phantasmatic kernel of our being, our innermost inadmissible dreams and so on, from the more superficial modes of our symbolic identifications. It is never possible for me to fully assume the phantasmatic core of my being. When I approach it too much, when I come too close to it, what occurs is what Lacan, following Freud, calls the aphanesis of the subject. The subject loses his or her symbolic consistency, he or she disintegrates. And perhaps the first actualization in social reality of the phantasmatic kernel of my being is the worst, most humiliating kind of violence, a violence which undermines the very basis of my identity. Now we can clearly see how far psychoanalysis is from any defense of the dignity of the human face. Is the psychoanalytic treatment not the experience of rendering public to the analyst one's most intimate fantasies, and thus the experience of losing one's face, 
in, I claim precisely, the most radical Levinasian sense of the term. This is already the lesson of the very material dispositive of a psychoanalytic treatment. No face-to-face -face between the analysant, patient, and the analyst, but the subject lying and the analyst sitting behind him, both staring in the same void in front of them. There is no intersubjectivity here, only the two without face-to-face. -face. How then do, for Levinas, corps, judgments, institutions, and so on, enter the scene? As we all know, Levinas's answer is by way of the presence of the third. When face-to-face -face with the other, I am infinitely responsible to him. This is, for Levinas, as it were, the original ethical constellation. However, there is always a third one, and from that moment new questions arise. How does my neighbor whom I face relate to this third? Is he the third's friend, or his foe, or even his victim? Who of the two is my true neighbor in the first place? All this, as Levinas puts it, compels me to compare the infinities that cannot be compared, to limit the absolute priority of the other, to start to calculate the incalculable. However, what is important for Levinas is that this kind of legal relationship, necessary as it is, remains grounded in the primordial ethical relationship to the other, as the others face. The responsibility for the other, the subject, as the response to the infinite call embodied in the other's face, which is ultimately and simultaneously helpless, vulnerable, and issuing an unconditional injunction, the, this responsibility is for Levinas asymmetrical and non-reciprocal. I am responsible for the other without having any right to claim that the other should display the same responsibility for me. Levinas liked to quote Dostoevsky here. We are all responsible for everything and guilty in front of everyone, but I am dead more than all others. End of quote. This ethical asymmetry between me and the other, addressing me with the infinite call, is the primordial fact. And I should never lose my grounding in this irreducibly first-person relationship to the other. Along these lines, in his Edge and Infinity, Levinas emphasizes how what appears as the most natural should become for us the most questionable. For example, this is, I think, his implicit criticism of Spinoza, the notion, of course, Spinoza's notion, that every entity naturally strives in its conatus, as Spinoza put it, towards its perseverance in, and its immanent powers. Lenas counters this with a question. Do I have the right to be? Is it not that by insisting in being, I deprive others of their place? I ultimately kill them. What one should fully acknowledge is that this stance of Levinas is radically anti-biopolitical. Levinasian ethics is the absolute opposite of today's biopolitics with its emphasis on regulating life and deploying its potentials. For Levinas, ethics is not about life, but about something more than life. It is at this level that Levinas locates the gap that separates Judaism and Christianity. Judaism's fundamental ethical task, neglected, Levinas thinks in Christianity, is that of how to be without being a murderer. Here is a quote from Levinas making this point. 
What is an individual? A solitary individual is not a tree that grows without regard for everything it suppresses and breaks, grabbing all the nourishment, air and sun, a being that is fully justified in its nature and its being. What is an individual if not a usurper? What is signified by the advent of conscience and even the first spark of spirit if not the discovery of corpses beside me and my horror of existing by assassination? From Levinas's Difficult Freedom. Now, how, what's my comment to it? Of course, I'm aware that the first standard humanist answer to the Levinas would have been here uh, that one can, you know, this banality, you can truly love others only if you love yourself. If you don't love yourself, you cannot truly appreciate others. However, I claim that at a more radical level, there is something inherently false in such a link between the responsibility for and to the other and questioning my own right to exist. Although Levinas asserts this asymmetry as universal, everyone of us is in the position of primordial responsibility. Does this asymmetry not effectively end up in privileging one particular group which assumes responsibility for all others? A group which embodies in a privileged way this responsibility, a group which, as it were, directly stands for this responsibility. In this case, of course, Jews. So that I'm ironically tempted to speak about, you know, the old colonialist term of uh, white man's burden, of Jewish man's ethical burden. A quote, again from Difficult Freedom. The idea of a chosen people must not be taken as a sign of pride. It does not involve being aware of exceptional rights, but of exceptional duties. It is the prerogative of a moral consciousness itself. It knows itself at the center of the world, and for it the world is not homogeneous. For I am always alone in being able to answer the call. I am irreplaceable in my assumption of responsibility. End of quote again from Difficult Freedom. My commentary. Do we not get here in a homology I intended to claim with the way Marx in the first chapter of Capital develops uh, three forms of the expression of value of a commodity, a kind of passage from simple to developed form. First, only two of us, I am responsible for you, then when what Marx called <coughs> developed form, I am responsible for all of you, and then the general equivalent and its reversal. I am the privileged side of responsibility for all of you, which is why you are all effectively responsible to me. Is this not the truth of such an ethical stance, thereby confirming the old Hegelian suspicion that every self-denigration secretly asserts its contrary? It is like the proverbial political correctness of the Western white male who questions his own right to assert his cultural identity while celebrating the exotic identity of others, but thereby asserting his privileged status of the universal neutral medium of recognizing others' identities. Self-questioning is always by definition the obverse, the other side of self-privileging. There is always something false about respect for others which is based on questioning one's own right to exist. 
Let me now quote a longer passage again from Difficult Freedom, which is, I think, Levinas at its best and in its worst. And you need to have the passage from the best to the worst. The best being the wonderful assertion of the Jewish law as precisely an uprooted law, and the worst you will see. Quote. Every work is an uprooting. The constitution of a real society is an uprooting. The end of an existence in which the being at home is absolute, and everything comes from within. Paganism is putting down roots. The advent of the scriptures, Old Testament, is not the subordination of the spirit to a letter, but the substitution of the letter to the soul. The spirit is free within the letter, and it is enslaved within the root. It is on the arid soil of the desert, where nothing is fixed, of course, reference to Palestine and so on, that the true spirit descended into a text in order to be universally fulfilled. Paganism is the local spirit, nationalism in terms of its cruelty and pitilessness, a humanity with roots that possesses God inwardly with the sap rising from the earth is a forest of, or of prehuman humanity. A history in which the idea of a universal God must only be fulfilled requires a beginning, it requires an elite. It is not through pride that Israel feels it has been chosen. It has to be obtained, it has to obtain this through grace. Each time the people are judged, Israel is judged. It is because the universality of the divine exists only in the form in which it is fulfilled in the relation between men, and because it must be fulfillment and expansion, that the category of a privileged civilization exists in the economy of creation. This civilization is defined in terms not of prerogatives but of responsibilities. Every person as a person, that is to say, one conscious of his freedom, is chosen. If being chosen takes on a national appearance, it is because only in this form can a civilization be constituted, be maintained, be transmitted and endured. End of quote. So, again, all people participate in universality, but Jews are more universal than others. Another quote from Difficult Freedom. The Jewish faith involves tolerance because, from the beginning, it bears the entire weight of all other men. And again, I think this is Jewish men's burden. Insofar as Jews are absolutely responsible, responsible for all of us, is it not that, at a kind of a reflexive level, we are all doubly responsible to the Jews, or in an inverted way? If they are all responsible, if they are responsible for all of us, is it not that the way to get rid of our responsibility is to annihilate them, those who condense our responsibility? To avoid any misunderstanding, my point here is that, uh, in a strange way, what Levinas develops is almost the opposite of the implicit anti-Semitic reasoning. Now, back to Spinoza. A Spinozian answer to Levinas would have been that our existence is not at the expense of others, but it is part of the network of reality. There is for Spinoza no Hobbesian self as extracted from and opposed to reality. Spinoza's ontology is an ontology of full immanence to the world. I am just the network of my relations with the world and within the world. I am totally externalized in these relations. My conatus, my tendency to assert myself, 
is therefore not my assertion at the expense of the world, but my full acceptance of being part of the world, my assertion of the wider reality within which I can only thrive. The opposition of egotism and altruism is thus overcoming Spinoza. I fully am, not as an isolated self, but in the thriving reality part of which I am. Levinas therefore, I think, secretly imputes to Spinoza an egotistic, subjectivist, if you want, notion of my existence. His anti-Spinozian questioning of my right to exist is inverted arrogance, as if I am the center whose existence threatens all others. So the answer should not be an assertion of my right to exist in harmony with and tolerance of others, but a more radical claim. Do I exist at all in the first place? Am I not, rather, a whole in the order of being? This brings us to the ultimate paradox on account of which I think Levinasian answer is not sufficient. I am effectively a threat to the entire order of being, not insofar as I positively exist as part of this order, but precisely insofar as I am a whole in the order of being. As such as nothing, I am a striving to reach out and appropriate everything. Only a nothing can, discount to become, can desire to become everything. It was already Schelling who defined subject as the endless striving of the nothing to become everything. And on the contrary, a positive living being occupying a determinate space in reality rooted in it is by definition a moment of its circulation and reproduction. Again, recall the already mentioned politically correct landscape. People far from the Western world are allowed to fully assert their particular ethnic identity in this politically correct vision without being proclaimed essentialist, racist, identitarians and so on. If you are far away, if you are black, Native American, okay, all your sins like, I don't know, uh, 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 deprivation of women and so on are forgotten. Now, the closer you get to the notorious white heterosexual males, the more, more problematic your assertion becomes. Asians are still okay, Italians and Irish maybe. With Germans and Scandinavians, it is still problematic. However, such a prohibition of asserting the particular identity of white men as the model of oppression of others, although it presents itself as the admission of their guilt, nonetheless confers on them a central position. This very prohibition to assert their particular identity makes them into the universal neutral medium, the place from which the truth about others' oppression is accessible. One should therefore assume the risk of countering Levinas's position with a more radical one. Others are primordially an ethically indifferent multitude. And love is a violent gesture of cutting into this multitude and privileging a one, someone, as who works, as the neighbor, thus introducing a radical imbalance into the whole. In contrast to love, justice begins when I remember the faceless many left in shadow in this privileging of the one. Justice and love are structurally incompatible. Justice, not love, has to be blind. It has to disregard the privileged one whom I really understand. What this means is that the third is not secondary. It is always already here. And the primordial ethical obligation is towards this third, who is not here in the face-to-face -face relationship. 
the one in seven, the absence of a love couple. In order to properly grasp the triangle of love, hatred and indifference, one has to rely on the logic of the universal and its constitutive exception. The truth of the universal proposition, man is mortal, does not imply the existence of even one man. While the apparently less strong proposition, there is at least one man who exists, or some men exist, implies their existence. Lacan draws from this the conclusion that we pass from universal proposition, which only defines the content of a notion, to existence only through a proposition stating the existence of at least one, which is an exception to the universality in question. What this means with regard to love is that the universal proposition, I love you all, acquires the level of actual existence only if there is at least one whom I hate. That this is abundantly confirmed by the fact that the universal love for humanity always led to the brutal hatred of the actually existing exception, of the enemies of humanity. This hatred of the exception is the proof of universal love. In contrast to true love, which can only emerge against the background, not of universal hatred, relationships here asymmetrically, but of universal indifference. I am indifferent towards all, the totality of the universe, and as such I actually love you, the unique individual who sticks out against the back, this indifferent background. Love and hatred are thus, not, are thus not symmetrical. Love emerges out of the universal indifference, while hatred emerges out of universal love. In short, we are dealing here with what Lacan called the formulas of sexuation. I do not love you all is the only foundation of there is somebody, there is nobody that I do not love. While I love you all necessarily relies on I really hate some of you. But I love you all, as you probably know, defended himself Erich Milke, the secret police boss of the German Democratic Republic. You remember in the last days of DDR, when he was attacked by critical members of the party, he made this successful gesture, but I love you all. I think this was not irony. It has to be taken literally. I love you all is the universal proposition which grounded his hatred of the enemies of socialism. This brings us to the radical anti-Levinasian conclusion. The true ethical step is the one beyond the face of the other, the one of suspending the hold of this face, the choice against the face for the third. This coldness is justice at its most elementary. Every preempting of the other in the guise of his face relegates the third to the faceless background. And the elementary gesture of justice it's not to show respect for the face in front of you, to be open for its depth and so on, but to abstract from it and refocus onto the faceless thirds in the background. It is only such a shift of focus onto the third which effectively uproots justice, liberating it from the contingent umbilical link that renders her embedded in a particular situation. In other words, it is only such a shift onto the third that grounds justice in the dimension of its proper true universality. When Levinas endeavors to ground ethics in the other's face, is he not still clinging to the ultimate root of all ethical commitment? Is he not still afraid to accept the abyss of the rootless law as the only foundation of ethics? 
justice as blind just means that precisely it cannot be grounded in the relationship to others' uh, faith. And this structure, I think, is irreducible. It is not that while in our empirical lives the third is irreducible, we should maintain as a kind of Kantian regulative idea the full grounding of ethics in the relationship to the other's face. Such a grounding is not only empirically impossible, it is a priori impossible, since the limitation of our capacity to relate to others' faces is the mark of our very finitude. In other words, the limitation of our ethical relation of responsibility towards the other space, which necessitates the rise of the third, the domain of regulation, is a positive condition of ethics. If we deny this, if we speak to the postulate of a final transatability of the third into a relation to other space, we remain caught in understanding. One can understand everything. Even the most hideous crime has an inner truth and beauty when observed from within. Recall the refined spiritual meditation of Japanese warriors. And I'm sure, for example, one can understand Heidrich. He would say, but you don't understand anything about my deep inner experience of playing in the evenings, Beethoven, string quartets, and so on and so on. This is what the ethical law prohibits. Justice has to ignore the so-called inner truth. Recall the famous passage from Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory. Quote, when you visualize a man or woman carefully, you could always begin to feel pity. That was a quality God's image carried with us. When you saw the lines at the corner of the eyes, the shape of the mouth, how their hair grew, it was impossible to hate. Hate is just a failure of imagination. I don't know how Graham Greene meant it, but my conclusion is, in order to practice justice, one has to suspend one's power of imagination. So back to Levinas. I think that the limitation of Levinas is not simply that of a Eurocentrist who relies on a too narrow definition of what is human, a definition that secretly excludes non-Europeans as not fully human. If anything, I think I always sympathize with Levinas when he openly acknowledged his Eurocentric bias. For example, in a wonderful, strange text, uh, he reports on how our time is marked by, quote, the arrival on the historical scene of those underdeveloped Afro-Asiatic masses that are strangers to the sacred history that forms the card of the Judaic Christian world, and so on. So, even in one text, very significant text from 1960, about the philosophical background of the Chinese-Soviet uh, political strife, he even openly says that Chinese are not our neighbors, emphatically. It's a different attitude. And for me, that's not the problem. What Levinas fails to include into the scope of human is rather the inhuman itself, a dimension which eludes the face-to-face -face relationship of humans. Recall here, at a different level, Theodor Adorno's ambiguity with regard to the inhuman. While Adorno is well aware of the violence involved in the predominant definition of what counts as human, the implied ex exclusion of whole dimensions as non-human. He nonetheless basically conceives inhuman as the depository of alienated humanity. Ultimately for Adorno, inhuman is the power of barbarism we have to fight. Now what Adorno failed to render thematic, I claim is as it were the positive dimension of 
the inhuman, which I think this positive dimension was first indicated, even conceptualized, in the changed status of the inhuman in Kantian transcendental terms. Kant introduced a key distinction between negative and, in his critique of pure reason, negative and indefinite judgment. For example, the positive judgment, the soul is mortal, can be negated in two ways. When a predicate is denied to the subject, the soul is not mortal, and when it's not the predicate which is denied, but a non-predicate which is affirmed. Not the soul is not mortal, but the soul is non-mortal. The difference is exactly the same as the one known to every reader of Stephen King and other cheap horror writers between he is not dead and he is undead. The indefinite judgment, he is undead, opens up a third domain which undermines the underlying distinction. He is not dead means simply he is alive. He is undead means he is alive precisely insofar as he is dead. The undead are neither alive nor dead. They are precisely the monstrous living dead. And I claim the same goes for inhuman. It's crucial to conceive of inhuman as uh, a Kantian uh, indefinite judgment. He is not human. It's not the same as he is inhuman. He is not human means simply he is external to humanity. Animal, divine, whatever. While he is inhuman means something totally different. The fact that he is neither human nor inhuman, but marked by a terrifying excess which, although it negates what we understand as humanity, is inherent as an innermost possibility of being human. And perhaps one should reach the hypothesis that this is what changes with the Kantian philosophical revolution. In the pre-Kantian universe, humans were simply humans, beings of reason, fighting the excess of animal lusts or divine madness. While only with Kant and German idealism, the access to be thought is absolutely immanent, the very core of subjectivity itself, which is why, as you probably know, with German idealism, the metaphor for the very core of subjectivity is no longer light, the light of reason, but night, what Hegel called the night of the world. So when in the pre-Kantian universe a hero goes mad, it means he is deprived of his humanity. That is to say, animal passions or divine madness took over. While with Kant, madness signals the unconstrained explosion of the very core of a human being. And this dimension, I think, is missing also in Levinas. In a properly dialectical paradox, what is missing in Levinas, with all his celebration of otherness, is not some underlying sameness of all humans, but the radical, inhuman dimension, the otherness to humanity itself, the otherness of a human, of being reduced to inhumanity, the otherness exemplified among others by the, the terrifying figure of Musulmanen, the living dead in the concentration camps. I should only refer here to the wonderful book by Agamben, his What Remains of Auschwitz, where he writes in a wonderful way about the paradoxical ethical status of Muslims, Muslims in the concentration camps. Which is why, although Levinas is often perceived as the thinker who endeavored to articulate the experience of Shoah, usually called Holocaust, one thing is self-evident apropos his questioning of one's own right to be. 
apropos his emphasis on my unconditional asymmetrical responsibility. This is not how a survivor of the Shoah, how one effectively experiencing the ethical abyss of Shoah, thinks and writes. This is how, I claim, those who feel guilty for observing the catastrophe for, from a minimal safe distance think. Is the paradox of the Muslim in the concentration camp not that this figure is simultaneously a zero level, total reduction to life, a zero level of life, and a name for the pure excess as such, excess deprived of its normal base? This is why the figure of the Muslim signals the limitation of Levinas. When describing it, Primo Levi repeatedly uses the predicate faceless. And this term should be given, I think here, its entire Levinasian weight. When confronted with a Muslim, one precisely cannot discern in his face the trace of the abyss of the other, addressing us with the infinite call of our responsibility. What one gets is a kind of blind call, a lack of depth. Maybe Muslim is thus the zero-level neighbor, the neighbor with whom no empathic face-to-face -face relationship is possible. For this same reason, Levinas is also unable to take the properly Christian path of ethical paradoxes of the so-called teleological suspension of the ethical, uh, outlined by Kierkegaard. In the chapter of his Either Or, in the volume one, called The Ancient Tragical Motive, as reflected in the modern, Kierkegaard deployed his fantasy of what a modern Antigone would have been. The conflict, he claims, is now entirely internalized. There is no longer a need for Creon. While Antigone admires and loves her father Oedipus, the public hero and savior of Thebes, she knows the truth about him, murderer of the father, incestuous marriage, and so on. Her deadlock is that she is prevented from sharing this accursed knowledge, like Abraham, who also could not communicate to others the divine injunction to sacrifice his son. She cannot complain, she cannot share her pain and sorrow with others. In contrast to Sophocles Antigone, who acts, bears her brother, and thus actively assumes her fate, Kierkegaard's Antigone is unable to act, condemned forever to impassive suffering. This unbearable burden of her secret, of her destructive agalma, finally drives her to death, in which only she can find peace, otherwise provided by symbolizing sharing with others one's pain and sorrow. And Kierkegaard's point is that this situation is no longer properly tragic, in a similar way that Abraham, also for Kierkegaard, is not a tragic figure. Now I'm tempted to go here a step further. Insofar as Kierkegaard's Antigone is a paradigmatically modernist, modern figure, should one not go on with his mental experiment and imagine a postmodern Antigone, with, of course, I cannot escape my nature, a Stalinist vision. In contrast to the modern one, modern Antigone, the postmodern one should find herself in a position in which, to quote Kierkegaard himself, the ethical dimension, the ethical itself, would be the temptation. One version version would undoubtedly be for Antigone to publicly renounce, denounce and accuse her father, or in a different version, her brother Polynices, accuse him of his terrible sins out of her unconditional love for him. 
De Kirke Guardian Catch is that such a public act would render Antigone even more isolated, absolutely alone. No one, with the exception of Oedipus himself, if he were still to be alive, would understand that her act of betrayal is the supreme act of love. Antigone would thus be entirely deprived of her sublime, of this shining, fascinating, sublime beauty. So again, what I'm trying to imagine, you got it, is the Stalinist trial against, against uh, Oedipus and Antigone playing the role, you know, of the Stalinist wife who, wife of the accused, you know, had to accuse your own relatives of being traitors and so on and so on. And do not misunderstand me here. My point is not to play games through, with, through hor horrors and so on and so on. I think that if we are to go to the end in what the ethical experience of, 20, what, of what 20th century means, within the horizon of our ethical experience, we should go through this zero level, where it experiences the gap between the absolute dimension, Kierkegaard called this theological and ethical, at its purest, where we experience how, as Kierkegaard put it, ethical itself is a temptation to be, to be resisted. Now let me conclude just with two final points. The first one, I think, is that the radical conclusion to be drawn from all this is that, precisely apropos of Antigone, is that one should renounce the very striving for one's own spiritual salvation. Here I agree with Levinas, who himself quotes a very nice passage from Leon Braunschweig, the old French philosopher of the early 20th century, who claims that, quote from uh, Braunschweig, the preoccupation with our salvation is a remnant of self-love, a trace of natural egocentrism from which we must be torn by the religious life. But I claim that we have to make here a step further and claim that what we find at the end of this road is atheism, not the ridiculously pathetic spectacle of heroic defiance of God, but the insight into the irrelevance of the divine. I would like to finish with a quote from Brecht's Geschichte Stories of Herr Koiner, this Kafkaesque figure in Brecht, where one concerns precisely the question of atheism. Here is Brecht's short five lines passage. Someone asked Herr Koiner, Mr. Koiner, if there is a God. Herr Koiner said, I advise you to think about how your behavior would change with regard to the answer to this question. If it would not change, then we can drop the question. If it would change, then I can help you at least insofar as I can tell you. You already decided. You need a God. <laughs> so the true atheism is, again, to make question itself meaningless. And I think Brecht is right here. Again, we are never in a position to directly choose between theism and atheism. Since the choice as such is located within the field of belief. Atheism, in the, sen in the sense of heroically deciding not to believe in God, is a miserable, pathetic stance of those who long for God but cannot find Him, or who rebel against God, and so on and so on. A true atheist does not choose atheism. For him, the question itself is irrelevant. And the last remark with which I would like to return to my uh, starting quote from Alain Badiou uh, about
about this uh, pitiless, uh, the need for us to become pitiless sensor, that is say how we should reject this injunction in joy. Again, that we live in a very paradoxical time today where one of the characteristics of our times is that in contrast to previous times where at least there appeared to be some kind of a tension between religious moral beliefs and your right to enjoy, I claim that today religion itself is evoked to sustain our, injunct our injunction or ability to enjoy. I think that uh, I think that the situation is today, again, with regard to enjoyment, extremely paradoxical. I would like here to refer to another unpublished writing by Badiou, where he speaks about the cut, how, well, uh, the, how today uh, meaning and truth can no longer overlap. That is to say, for example, modern science develops truths, different modalities of truth, with which with whom meaning, meaningful experience cannot catch up. So what are we to do here? I think that this necessity to catch it up, that is to say, to reinvent, to, to reject this gap, to reject our acceptance of this gap, and to reinvent some kind of a meaning which would still catch up with, the, with scientific or political truth today, is, I think, what gives a new impetus to forms of religion today. That's what religion is basically doing today. My God, uh, uh, bio, biogenetic experiments, they render our life meaningless or uh, whatever, and uh, the, 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 the function of religion here is to say, no, stop, we must guarantee meaning. And paradox, there are paradoxical things going on here. For example, it's interesting to observe how even great enlightened people who present themselves as great philosophers of enlightenment, like Habermas, speak, start to speak the same language. I think, let me be very clear, today we are facing the emergence of a new form of state philosophy, state philosophy, which is precisely Habermasian neo-Kantianism. Why? Let me be very precise. What always was the function of proper state philosophy? Now, I'm not speaking at the personal level, the government is paid or whatever, but I'm speaking about the structural function. On the one hand, we have today tremendous explosion of new technologies, scientific uh, 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 breakthroughs, and so on. A state philosophy should do this. On the one hand, it should allow the space for these breakthroughs, because otherwise you put in danger this permanent self-revolutionizing of capitalism and so on, but at the same time it should block its epistemological, ethical consequences. That is to say, the catch is how to divide the two spheres so that on the one hand, yes, okay, do your biogenetic things, but stop, don't go too far so that you will threaten our sense of autonomy and so on and so on. Which is, I think, what makes it pretty tragic of how Habermasian position today is a purely defensive position. It's the position how to play this double game of, unfortunately, we have this progress, but we should stop. Again, this is also, I think, exactly the same strategy as the religious strategy. How to, how to retain this fragile balance? In other words, Habermas, the great Enlightenment guy, is still playing only a more sophisticated uh, New Age strategy. Because, as you, prob 
No, of course, another strategy would be precisely the new age strategy, where you find through some obscure operations like quantum physics, oscillation, or do we not find this in Buddhism and so on? It's the same idea of uniting them, uh, these two dimensions. And I think that, if anything, this today is our ethical duty. And this is for me how I understand this pitiless censor of ourselves. This means for me precisely what we have to censor is precisely this, the French have a nice expression like push or schwer, push, 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 or songs, or a la signification, they are not the same, like this, this uh, spontaneous, as it were, ideological tendency towards meaning. And since today, meaning is more and more identified with jouissance, I think this is why Dalai Lama is such a hit. I don't know if he is aware of what he is doing, but the way his works function here, why is Dalai Lama on the best list of New York Times? Because what he effectively does, and I'm not speaking as a Stalinist, not subjectively, but the objective social meaning of his book is, to sell us Tibetan Buddhist ethics as totally compatible with our egotistic striving for personal self-fulfillment and so on. His message is, you want self-fulfillment, pleasurable life, don't fear Buddhism, you can, you can get it through it. Which is why I think that uh, the lesson of secondly analysis today is crucial. Not uh, because today, again, we, as but you indicated in the thesis, we live in a society whose fundamental ideological interaction precisely is enjoy, far from having anything transgressive about it. Enjoyment is precisely the fundamental interaction. And psychoanalysis now starts to find its proper terrain, which is not as we thought till now that, you know, you are not able to enjoy, you have these famous internalized paternal prohibitions, and then you cannot do it, so you go to a psychoanalyst who enables you to overcome your internal obstacles and finally can do it. Uh, I think, on the contrary, the, if there is one ethical attitude which psychoanalysis stands for, it is precisely other discourses, from sexual, sex manuals to, to Dalai Lama's writings. In all of them, you have one big underlying message. Enjoy, realize yourself, develop your potential, you should do it, enjoy. Psychoanalysis, on the contrary, is today the only discourse whose message is you are allowed not to enjoy. I'm very precise here. Not you should not enjoy. Because this is just a kind of an obscene inverted superego call. But you are allowed not to enjoy. That is to say, enjoyment is not the contrary to what people think. The message of Sacrilege is precisely no, enjoyment is not the fundamental category of your existence. From this, I didn't, don't have time to do it, one should reread this inhuman dimension, not only as that. Uh, 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 put it, limit of humanity as embodied in the figure of Muslim but the very ethical, the very, uh, that some inhuman dimension is in the very heart of every ethical act, I claim. In this sense, I don't have time to develop it now, just since I didn't yet use my 60 minutes, I still have five minutes. Uh, along these lines, I think what, what one should criticize and reinterpret 
the notion of universal human rights today. As even somebody with whom I totally do not agree, otherwise politically, Hannah Arendt, said, and here I agree with her partially, that the fundamental paradox is that the notion of human rights became so actual at the very point where a class of people emerged, she was referring to 100 years ago at that time, when there was a class of people who were refugees, stateless, and precisely had no human rights. So, from the very beginning, universal human rights were basically rights of those who have no guaranteed political rights, and so on and so on. So we will say, what's the problem with it? Isn't this nice? We have some universal standard which especially target those who have no rights. Ah, today we get an obscene twist to this. In a recent writing published, I think, at least I found it only in English, Rancière gave her, although, again, otherwise I don't agree with him, with Jacques Rancière, but gave a nice thing here. His idea was that, what does this mean that human rights are the rights of those who have, or rather, who are not able to exercise effectively any rights, like uh, uh, refugees, starving people, and so on and so on. This means something very precise. This means, as Rancière put it in a wonderful, ironic way, we in developed countries have nothing to do with human rights. We, this is not our problem. No, our problem is more this, more, not basic human rights. So, we do with them exactly what we do with old useless medicine and, 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 old, and uh, food out of date and old clothes. We export them to third world countries. But there is one catch in this export business, is that those for whose human rights we fight are not able themselves to fight them. So we have a kind of almost Hegelian reflexive term. What universal human rights means, it effectively means our right to make humanitarian intervention where we want. We export them so that via this detour they return to us. And I think this is what effectively universal human rights means today. The right of us to intervene wherever we want. The universality is our universality, our universal right to intervene wherever we want as if in order to defend uh, human rights. Along all these lines one would have to say many other things, but uh, as Indians say in this old westerns I've spoken.